the definition of exceptional businesses will probably tweak at the margins because people will be less concerned about hyper growth, let's call it, and more concerned about hyper resilience. So they'll absolutely want to know that businesses have contracted, recurring revenue, strong margins, and under any circumstances, they continue to generate cash, pay down debt, and deliver returns. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Pep Talks podcast. I'm your producer, Richard Ayliff. In this episode, we have a repeat guest on the podcast. We are once again joined by Richard Madden, the CEO of DC Advisory UK, a leading international investment bank who provide buy and sell side advice during private equity transactions and other M&A activity. Richard will be reflecting on the predictions he made for the PE market at our annual conference in November last year and making his predictions for the future in terms of fundraising, inflationary pressures, acquisitions, the rise of continuation funds and debt markets. Before we jump into the episode, we have a quick announcement about a great event opportunity for our listeners. During the early evening on the 15th of September, DC Advisory will be holding their annual flagship event, DC Fest. It's a great evening of street food, live music, entertainment and local beers, all underpinned by some fantastic networking opportunities as over 100 of the UK's most influential CEOs, P professionals and international DC advisory experts descend on the event. If you're a Pep Talks member interested in attending, just log into the members platform and go to the events page where you can sign up. If you aren't a member, just get in touch with one of the team directly or email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. Now onto the episode, which is a good example of the key insights you could take away from an evening at DC Fest. Over to Sam and Richard. So we're we're here. Uh, it is um, it's early July, and we're looking forward to a, a bit of a summer recess in pep talks where we don't have too much going on in August. Uh, but before we head off on our holidays, we thought we'd come and talk to Richard Madden. Richard is CEO of DC Advisory and a trusted partner of pep talks, of of course, as a as one of our original advisory members. And as you know, as listeners, certainly our membership, uh, as, as listeners, you'll know that we talk to Richard um, two or three times a year. The last time we spoke to him was in January, where we did a bit of a synopsis on um, 2021 deal activity. And then we were looking ahead a little bit, weren't we, Richard, thinking about, OK, well, what does 2022 look like? Sam, we were. We were. <laughs> and, you, and you came up some, with some really interesting observations, um, mostly that the market was going to slow uh, because... Yeah, all of those stellar assets have probably gone through a transaction in um, 2020, late 2020 and 2021. Um, what else did we think? We thought that, um, so we thought activity would slow. We thought the exceptional business had, had, had been sold and we, we weren't sure what was going to happen to those pretty decent assets that hadn't come to the market yet, but were likely to come this year. And you were, were uncertain about pricing there and valuations. We talked a little bit about debt in that webinar um, because interest rates were definitely going up then, but they've they've jumped significantly since then. We we saw the uh, the threat of Russia on Ukraine's border, and we were concerned about that. And that's just been absolutely horrific to witness since February, and that's definitely created more challenges in um, 
the geopolitical and geoeconomic environment. Um, so we thought we'd come and talk to Richard again. Here we are in July and think, okay, well, what does the next six months look like and, and the next um, maybe 12 to 18 months? So Richard's got his crystal ball out. Hello, Richard. Sam, hello. Um, before I take my crystal ball out, um, it's probably worth touching on what has happened. So, so we predicted that there would be um, this slightly slower market, and there has been, it has been. So um, deal volumes are down markedly um, year on year in the UK from about 1,200 in the first half last year to sub 900 in the first half this year. So a reasonable level of activity, um, not as good as 2019, but some good flow as those businesses that we talked about last time did come to market. Mm -hmm. By and large, in terms of valuation, uh, people still remember how good it was, and some of that's flowed through. So I think pricing has been probably marginally more positive um, than we anticipated. But getting deals done has been harder. People are more diligent, people are more cautious. Um, and that was true even before the invasion mm. and even before inflation arrived. So that tone of caution permeates the market. And if you look at what's happening now, there's an amount of momentum that's carried everything through um, because processes had been planned, processes had started, people were engaged, they'd started to talk to bidders, they started to talk to lenders. And so there was an, an amount of momentum and not an inevitability that things happen, but certainly a good reason why they should. The more challenging thing is what happens now mm. as we have pause for thought. Because we're going into the summer where a lot of people um, will pause for thought. And the momentum that carried them through to here may not carry them through after the summer break. Mm -hmm. And the summer break is, is a point usually in the year, isn't it, for you guys in the advisory world and that businesses are... Uh, deals are trying to get completed pre the summer holiday and then getting stacked up to go or launch a process or be ready to really get into the process come um, the last quarter of the year. Yeah, there's, there's a natural rhythm. Um, the first is the one you've just spoken about. People get through their December year end um, and are thinking about a transaction and want to get it done by the summer. So there's a natural break. And then the second natural rhythm is people who come back from the summer put the business into the market September, October, with the expectation that it'll be substantially done by Christmas or, or maybe flow into the following year. Mm. But that's the second rhythm of the year. So we would, under normal circumstances, be expecting quite a lot of activity um, come September. Because if you remember last time, we talked about the fact that there was a large number of transactions that you would have expected to happen mm. that didn't happen because of COVID. Yeah. And so the stock of potential transactions remains high because we've had a quieter market, but there's still lots to come. So there's, there's a lot of people who, if they could, they would. If they could sell, they would sell. Right. Um, but the challenge now is if they could. Yeah. Will they, get the, will they get the price they want? Will they get the deal they want? Yeah, if you think about, it's like buying anything. So when you're buying a business, you are implicitly, and to an extent explicitly, making us an assumption about how it will perform. 
Because you're not buying it for what it has done, yeah, you're buying it for what it'll do for you. Yeah. So in literally every circumstance, you're sitting there saying, well, I anticipate that this business will perform in this way. I anticipate that it will grow in this way. And the challenge that people will have now is that anticipation is hard. Yeah. Because you know that the, the next six months or so will be characterized by high inflation, higher costs, difficulties in supply chain, and high interest rates. So, so you, or higher interest rates. Mm. So you know that it's going to be more difficult. You don't know how it will impact the business you're looking to buy. Mm. You can guess. Now, when the markets are stable and there's lots of evidence and things are consistent, you can have a pretty good guess because you can predict with some degree of accuracy in this stable market, if everything continues in the way that it's currently going, or there's a little bit of growth, then I can predict what will happen. Mm. Now you're sitting there and you say, well, it's not stable. I don't know. I can't predict. And therefore, people will be much more circumspect about whether they want to buy a business or not. And I don't really think it's a valuation or a pricing point. I just think the uncertainty means that people can't price the risk. I look at it, I, I just don't know. Mm. And therefore, I'd rather stay on the sidelines and not bid than be in a position where I am. My guess is not an educated guess, but a hopeful guess. Because private equity, for all of their entrepreneurship, aren't entrepreneurs. Mm. You know, they're people who are made to take calculated risks. Yeah. And the calculated risks are informed by knowledge, history, and spreadsheets. Mm. Um, and whilst you can still run a spreadsheet, you can't do it with knowledge. Um, and history is not necessarily, in fact, is almost certainly not an indicator of what may happen. Yeah. It's very but, difficult. But um, the amount of dry powder in the market is still there, isn't it? And I think in, when we were talking about this before, um, before coming to you today, uh, you were saying there's an awful lot, uh, a, a majority almost of UK PE houses out fundraising now. Um, so dry powder is probably going to increase, uh, but the number of transactions in the short term is probably going to reduce. Does that all lend itself towards more of a move towards these you know, incredibly popular assets in technology and software and um, uh, inflationary uh, resilient businesses and those that are in the sort of manufacturing, FMCG, consumer sort of spaces are going to find it difficult. So there's going to be assets already under private equity ownership in those industries. Uh, and actually, there's going to be a move for private equity to be heading towards these inflationary robust sectors. And these these other assets being sort of left on the bench actually for some time. They're not there's not a lot. So it's, yeah. I'm so sort of the, thinking about the, our yeah. CEO members who are running those businesses. It's, so the, there's, it two, quite there's two parts to that. The first is, um, the, is the, this wall of money, does it persist and how does it behave? That's the first one. And yes, it does persist. Even without fundraising, there's a huge amount of available capital. And as we talked about at your conference, there's a real incentive for private equity to continue to invest, to create growing businesses, to transact and give returns to their investors and to themselves. So that, that incentive for pace um, and for pace of deployment is now so well established that there will be a continued desire by almost everybody to keep deploying. Um, 
And there is no doubt that the exceptional businesses that we've talked about before will continue to attract that capital. Um, I think the definition of exceptional businesses will probably tweak at the margins because people will be less concerned about hyper growth, let's call it, and more concerned about hyper resilience. So they'll absolutely want to know that businesses have contracted, recurring revenue, strong margins. Margins are essentially a buffer. Yeah. Um, so you've got very strong margins and under any circumstances, they continue to generate cash, pay down debt, and deliver returns. So that does play towards the software companies that we talked about before. And um, particularly those where they're less constrained by some of the issues of resourcing and staffing managed service is a bit more difficult because you've got all of that and where the demand for the service is more about improvement and efficiencies than it is about transformation so i think those businesses will do continue to do fabulously well Mm -hmm. the challenge will be in in the next stack of businesses you can predict pretty comfortably that those are very that, that are very consumer dependent will struggle because you know that you, can, you can't anticipate consumer demand precisely, but you do know that every household in the UK will have lower disposable income, pretty much. Um, and so anything that's dependent on the consumer for enthusiasm and for its product is going to really struggle. So you're left with this piece in the middle. And I think that the businesses that will come to market over that September to December period that we're talking about uh, will be those that are characterised by extraordinary resilience. So you've got a business that has got long-term contracts, forward predicted revenue. Mm. The very best ones, largely in the infrastructure space, will have some inflation protection in their contract base. Yeah. And those will feel fantastic. Mm. So there is a, the, the, they may not be exceptional in terms of the growth rates that they have, but in terms of the business model, and the forward visibility and the cash generation and, 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 they'll look great. Yeah. And so as, a, as an investor, you'll sit there and say, well, what's the worst that happens? The worst that happens is I certainly don't lose my money. I can't lose my money in this situation. Um, but actually, over time, I can see a steady amount of growth that will see me deliver 1.7 times if nothing good happens and two and a half times if something good happens. So that kind of business will be in very, very high demand. Yeah. Yeah. So this this changes the the, the investor market um, considerably, doesn't it? I mean, their expectations in terms of returns are likely to come down. Uh, their ex- expectations of whole periods are likely to extend, aren't they? Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're certainly going to have a pause. So as we've said already, there's a huge stock of businesses that, that's coming or could, would, could, should, might come to market. Not all of them will. They won't pass that resilience test. And therefore, the best thing to do is, is not to start a process. So there will be more of those. Um, it does. Uh, but, and for how long the pause happens, I, I have no idea. Um, but you know that it'll be a pause that runs through the final quarter of this year. People will probably want to see what happens through the winter mm. and what happens to fuel bills and affordability and what people do with their diminishing 
disposable income or in many cases no disposable income at all mm. um, and so people want to see that flush through if we have a degree of restraint around wage increases there is a credible argument i think that says that inflation this won't be the beginning of a, a, a multi-year inflationary environment what we'll actually see instead is a step up in the cost base driven by the kind of one-off nature of events that we've seen if wages don't go up as much as that um, inflationary pressure then things will become less affordable and people will spend less and consequently some of the some of the heat around inflation will come out of the formula again mm -hmm. and so that the, the optimists would say there'll be a big step up and then a gentle incline the pessimists would say this is the first of many steps and the stairs are not a stairway to heaven where do you sit on that scale then um I think the pause will be slightly longer than, than that six to nine, six months or so, because I think people will really need to feel that whatever trend it is, it's a predictable trend, going back to predicting the future and, and guesswork, as I spoke about earlier. So, but, but my instinct is that come the first quarter of next calendar year, people will be beginning to make those assessments as to whether this is a step up or the beginning of that stairway yeah um and i am i think cautiously optimistic that it that it will be because so much of it has been caused by external shocks um and but it will take a real effort um and a real concerted effort to rein in the risk yeah so deal flow is going to come off um well, I mean, do you think there are, going to, there are going to be sort of interesting new trends around acquisitions or the type of deals yeah. that you see PE doing? Yeah. Like, you know, carve-outs will take privates and things like that, you know, as public so, companies are looking to sort of improve their balance sheets. So I think um, yes is the answer. And, it, it, uh, and it, it also will drive what type of processes people want to run. Because all of the comments I've made have been around the idea that you publicly put up a business for sale, that you run a large auction process, you approach 100 people and eventually you resolve to two. And you know, it's a big, right. noisy, yeah. gossipy affair, uh, which is what sale processes have become, where merger market report every move in a transaction. I just don't think that's likely to be the environment because you won't that that's kind of spray and pray approach and because the markets are re, have been reasonably positive your prayer is likely to be answered if you go spray pray now i think your prayer won't be answered so i think it'll be much more curated much more thoughtful where both for buyers and sellers there's a real focus on what is it that i want to achieve and so i do think there'll be more bilateral situations because it, bilaterals are quicker and more discreet. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? So if I'm selling a business, would I rather it was quick and discreet? Of course I would in this environment. Mm. And rather than run the risk that the markets deteriorate dramatically during my process and therefore I get a lower price, why wouldn't I lock in a price now mm. and just get it done? Knowing that I might not maximise the price, but knowing also that I've got a very good return out of it. So 
I think there'll be much more opportunity for bilateral situations to develop where the buyer has been looking at a particular business for a period of time and has the conviction to want to own the business and likes the idea of not being part of a competitive process. So I think bilateral or small deniable processes over quickly for good to very good pricing yeah. um, are sensible because if I'm a seller and I have to go to my investors, my LPs and say, and they say, you know, how do you know you've maximized price? That's the question they usually ask. Well, mm. at the moment, I think they'd just be delighted that you've locked in a price. Yeah. So I think that whole dynamic um, of, of locking in a price and getting a deal done rather than running a wide process to maximize competitive tension mm. is a different, it will be a very different dynamic. Yeah. And then in terms of public to private, um, it's always been a relatively small part of the market and it'll continue to be a relatively small part of the market. There appears to be value in the UK public markets when you look at how they're trading compared to other markets. They're, they're on a lower valuation and therefore that would feel like there is more opportunity. And again, most of those situations tend to be bilateral. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a more bilateral, more curated more of a knowledge-based process rather than a, the spray-and-pray approach that some people have um, participated in over the last year or so. The other thing we, um, we talked about in January, which we are seeing and have, are hearing much more about uh, in the last 12 months, I mean, probably 18 months ago, you know, barely, barely even came across the sort of terminology of um, uh, fund-to-fund, sort of continuation yeah. fund deals. Um, and quite a few of our members are sort of alert to it. They're just a little bit, you know, what is this? Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What does this mean to me? Uh, is this something we should, you know, I remember one recently was sort of, um, they're, they're performing extremely well. They probably need to go through a transaction in the next, well, in the near term. And um, a continuation fund was looking like it was maybe one of the best options. Um, but there's quite a lot of nervousness about what that means to management and whether they're a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, have you seen more of this in the last six months? And Yes. Uh, so so um, it is becoming increasingly popular as a form of exit for Fund 5 or whichever fund it is within your private equity ownership. Um, the circumstances under which it works are relatively clear. Um, the, f the selling fund has to be in some way limited in its capacity to support the business. That might be because it doesn't have capital, that might be because it's running out of time. The business needs to be able to demonstrate that more time will create more value. And if those are the characteristics, then a continuation fund is a real um, possibility. Just so that people understand what we're talking about when yeah. we say a continuation fund. Essentially, the general partner sets up a new fund to buy the business. Just they, this particular business, though, is not... A single, that's a, we'll talk, this is a single asset continuation right. fund. There are others. Um, but in a single asset continuation fund, the general partner sets up a new fund to buy the business. It then... Ha, it, it will manage the business. It'll carry on managing the business and attracting fees as a consequence and the opportunity for carry as a consequence. But it will bring in a set of LPs 
to invest in that vehicle and that business on its own. Those LPs are most likely to come from one of their existing um, funds, so people they already know, Mm -hmm. but quite frequently it's often priced by an external fund who's new to the situation. Um, So it's essentially like being bought by a new private equity fund, except the faces don't change. It's the same faces as you know before. The transactions are complex. The structuring around them is complex. For the management team, it's important that you recognise this as a change of control in just the same way as though it were a third-party fund. And so the conversations that you have about your ambition for the business, about the debt you want to put into the business, and about what happens to your existing stake in the business should be conducted in exactly the same way as as if you were selling to a third party. Um, because you should have that opportunity both to benefit from the success that you've delivered to date, but also to reinvest into the future. To treat it like a a proper change of control transaction. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, So you you intimated there was another type of continuation fund. Yeah, the other type of continuation fund is probably less straightforward for management teams, which are multi-asset Fund. So essentially, I'm fund five again. At the end of it, I've, I've delivered returns and carry, and I've got four assets that haven't yet sold, mm-hmm. but I'm running towards the end of my hold period and looking to raise my new fund, et cetera, et cetera. So what am I going to do with these four? In the relatively recent past, the most likely outcome is I would sell them to a third-party asset manager, mm-hmm. of whom there are several, collar. Chamonix, etc. Yeah. Um, increasingly, people are setting up an, a continuation fund to buy those businesses. So, it, a, a multi-asset continuation fund that buys those businesses and resets the clock, brings access to more capital, and off you go. So it's it's similar, mm. um, but it isn't. It, 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 the first example: single asset funds are really almost always about the best performers. This is less about it's like the it's tail. More about, sometimes the tail because it's not yet wagged, and sometimes yeah. the tail because it's been docked. But yes, the tail. Mm-hmm. Okay. And are you are you advising on how many? What's the volume so like we, in those we, sort of transactions? It's interesting. We've we've done a couple. Um, we're actually hiring a team um, who will be in on in September right. to advise on this because it is a different form of advice that has a lot in common with M&A because you have to value the business, you have to position it in its sector, you have to run a process, you have to think about whether to refinance it. All of that is the same. Mm. But then you do also need to to run an auction process, but not to other GPs, but with amongst LPs. And you need to think about how to structure it, how to structure the carry. How to, so it's, a bit, it's more complex um, and requires a different skill set for structuring and for attracting investors than we currently have mm. uh, until the 1st of September at which point we'll have it <laughs> you have expertise. And, yeah do you think this is going to be a, become a sort of another segment within the private equity sector you know like development capital sort of emerged five six years ago and is now a huge part of private equity world yes I mean if yes definitively yes so right. it's, it's, it's already bigger in the US than it is here um, if you look at the motivation of the general partner, and we've talked about the motivation of general partners in several of our conversations, yeah. um, 
there's two levels for it. The first is for this particular business, I want to see a way that I can benefit from its future growth. That's the kind of traditional um, mindset. But allied to that is this is another opportunity to get more carry because I've got a new fund and more fees because I've got a new funds. I've got more funds under management. So there's a real motivation for private equity or general partners to continue to invest in this. And again, it, if, if, if it's about pace and you've got four stub assets, mm. you want to get those out, moved on and onto your new fund. Mm. So there's, there's all sorts of powerful motivators for the general partnership. The, the challenge, I think, um, will be the amount of support that the LP community wants to give to this class. Because if you look at what's happened, and what you alluded to fundraising earlier, um, there are more and more people asking the same or very similar number of LPs for more and more money because their funds are getting bigger, et cetera, et cetera. So this is another call on LP cash. And when you look at that holistically, LPs are now over-indexed on alternative assets and private assets. Because if, let's say, that they decided that they were going to allocate 15% of their portfolio to alternative assets, the public markets are down 20%. And so suddenly that 15% is a smaller number. Mm. So there's, there's a lot of pressure within the fundraising cycle at the moment to find sufficient capital to support people's new funds, whether they are normal or continuation. Yeah. Although there is a nuance, which is there are quite a lot of LPs that have set up specific pools of capital for continuation funds. So do you think, um, going back to that, that point we raised, that question earlier in the conversation about fundraising, do you, you know, there's so many out in the market at the moment. Do you think they're going to get what they want um, in terms of... There's fun, a Rolling Stones song about this, isn't it? You can't <laughs> always get what you want, yeah. Sam. But if you try sometimes, then you might find you get what you need. But they have, they have been getting like, they've been sort of doubling their fund sizes. Yeah. I mean, there's been incredible sort of fund size growth, isn't there, in fundraising in the last three or four years. Um, sort of become popular to be a sort of three, four hundred, five hundred million fund and then go for one and a half billion. Uh, yeah, and I think it's that it's that strategy that's probably the challenge because um, the evidence of the last several years is that the larger funds from whom you would tolerate lower returns, so a 2x return, have delivered 3x. So you've put your most money behind these dramatically successful strategies at the larger funds. Yeah. And therefore, when you look at your pool of capital, you think, well, why wouldn't I follow that? I can put 100 million or 200 million into this specific situation and I'll get three times as much back. In the smaller funds, even if they've done three times, it's three times 20. So I've got 60 back. Does it matter? Does it make a difference? So there's a struggle for relevance amongst the mid-market um, and the mid-markets funds up to a kind of three or four billion, let's call it. Mm-hmm. There's a struggle for relevance there, um, uh, even if you've done well, because the bigger guys have done just as well or better. Yeah. And so getting LP allocation into alternative assets is hard. Getting LP allocation into the smaller end of the market, even harder. Right. So I, I think... Um, there's been a perception of inevitability about raising new funds that are bigger and shinier 
uh, and I'm not sure that perception of inevitability is robust. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. What about the debt markets then? What are you seeing now and what are you expecting to see? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, as you'd expect, um, the debt investors are paid to be cautious. Um, and they've got plenty of cause to be cautious. Yeah. So um, we're already seeing the banks, I mean, the large cap underwrites gone. Um, the banks largely closed. I mean, for, for assets they know and people they know and, and situations they know, somewhat open, but for new lens, not really open at all. And then within the debt funds, which is obviously the huge new asset class that which we is have. where an awful lot of the debt's coming from the vast today. majority the yeah. vast majority yeah is uh, well now the even vaster majority because everybody yeah. else is closed um, but even there y- you've actually got quite a lot of funds that have never been through a difficult lending environment a difficult credit environment and they're becoming much more selective much more quickly um, and so if businesses have the characteristics that I talked about in positive characteristics around resilience and reassurance then the market is open for them. Um, if they don't, then there's a much, much smaller market of potential lenders. Um, and I think it'll go to pricing. At the moment, it's not really going to price. It's kind of binary. I'm either in or I'm out. Yeah. And people aren't pricing risk. Um, so I, I think for less good credits, the spread will be, be painful. Well, I, I sorry. If if debt is an achievable outcome, so it's this is where we'll feel it first. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, sorry, this is where we're already feeling it quite significantly, and come the autumn, we really will. So, in terms of if you have a business where the hold period looks like it's longer, yeah, then you really do need to think about refinancing and refinancing soon, because there's only going to be so much capital available. Um, and, and I just think it, it you can't assume that you'll be able to get out of one situation and refinance and move on. I think that the, the prudent team get on with it. will look hard at what the risk is associated with their refinancing, and if they can, get it done, even though it'll be more expensive than you yeah, currently. because it could get an awful lot worse. Because it could get an awful lot worse. So I think it's a... You really think about it with the debt funds. The interest rate they're charging is sort of eight to twelve in, percent yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, not many at twelve, but yes. eight to ten percent. Yeah, and do they put their interest rate um, pricing up? It rises up in the same way as the yes. LIBOR and yeah. So, so at the moment, it, at the moment though, there isn't that much evidence that people are increasing pricing. They're sitting there and saying, well. I'm either in or I'm out, right. and they're more worried about the, quali- the underlying quality of the credit. We will be in a world relatively soon, I think, where they say, "Well, I'm taking more risk, and if I'm taking more risk, I want more money for it." Mm. So um, they're taking, to some extent, they're taking an upfront fees at the moment, which have gone up, um, and not in the rates, but it will come through in the rates. So it, it, it's a. I mean, you forget we're in a very low interest rate environment, and even those. Price, the pricing we talked about is, is, is not that significant. Yeah, but it will. But it will make a, you know, it won't be this comfortable for this long. And people will be sitting there saying, well, what is my interest cover? You know, if I look at my base case plan, do I, do I really generate enough cash to pay this interest? Yeah. So it's not, it's not 
it was a sort of negligible consideration and it won't be now yeah because people will as you sensitize your forward plan for the bank case that will be a plan that has flat to declining revenue and increasing costs yeah yeah i think um we did a session last week with our with our ceo members and the sort of overriding advice was you know don't be complacent about this even if it's not hitting your business yeah like a tidal wave yet in some sectors it really is isn't it i mean it's you know it has been for the last six months but you know others in those sort of tech and business services i mean they're feeling the inflationary pressures of um uh personnel uh, cost increase hr increase in cost but not necessarily in raw materials and and that you get in in the other sectors yeah. but you need to do you need to be on this all the time now yeah i mean i think if, if people think about one thing when they're taking august off it should be what am i going to do to make sure that my business has a, a resilient stable solid capital structure that can get me through potentially the the stairway not to heaven that I just talked about. Yeah. You know, it, I, I'm afraid it is, it, you gotta think about that first and then see what happens after that. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, well, great to see you. Thank you, Richard. That was- Well, it's nice to actually see you, so <laughs> we are do this in the room together. Yeah. Right on the screen. Um, I need to, I'm gonna do a little plug for DC Fest. DC Fest is your annual get together. Um, so once everyone's been on their holidays and they come back, this is a good chance to sort of um, connect with DC and uh, have a few drinks in the park, isn't it? So yeah, it's the end fun. of September, isn't it? It's great fun. So we're hoping the weather will be somewhat like it is now um, because it's outside and there's kind of lights and stilt walkers and street food and bands. Yeah. Oh, it was great last of, year. It was yeah. really good fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Pet Talks podcast. Hopefully we gave you some good food for thought and demonstrated the value you can gain from attending an event packed with experts just like Richard. Once again, if you're a member, you can just go onto the members platform and sign up to DC Fest there. If not, just email us at info at pep-talks.co.uk. Thanks again for listening.